0: Uh, Good morning, good evening and good night. Welcome to Better Place Talking International Law with me, Jonathan Kolib. Um, We hope you are all safe and well, wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Today, I am really thrilled to have with me Lucy Greenwood. I first met Lucy a few years back as uh, a coach in Hong Kong. We were both coaches of uh, rival university teams in an international commercial arbitration moot competition. Um, uh, She was one of the judges of the University of Houston uh, moot team and I of RMIT University. Um, I think I judged your team and, and then we chit-chatted afterwards and, and, and connected. Um, British accent, American team. Um, it was uh, met in Hong Kong. It was memorable connection. Um, Lucy, you're a successful uh, international arbitrator. Um, and you also give of your time to not just champion the next generation of, of global arbitrators and global lawyers, but also to train them as well Uh, and in particular um, a champion of increasing uh, the number of women involved in international arbitration too which hopefully we'll get to. Uh, So uh, Lucy, welcome. Thank you
1: Jonathan, I'm absolutely delighted to be with you today and how are you everyone?
0: Thank you Lucy. Uh, Let me give the the audience a little bit of your formal uh, bio Um, and I do say just a little bit. It is uh, being condensed because we only want um, a, 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 a yeah to fit it into one podcast episode, not multiple. So Lucy Greenwood is an independent international arbitrator specializing in commercial and investment disputes. She has over 20 years of experience in commercial and investment treaty arbitrations in a wealth of different industries uh, and has acted as counsel or arbitrator in more than 60 arbitrations. She's a chartered arbitrator, a member of the State Bar of Texas, and a solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. Um, her uh, arbitrations involve, uh, have involved energy, oil and gas disputes, fracking, water rights, land disputes, uh, construction issues, coal power plants, um, you name it, she's done it. Um, she is, uh, Lucy is a listed, on, uh, um, a listed arbitrator on several uh, arbitra- arbitrator panel rosters, including um, AKICA, the Australian Centre for International Dispute Resolution, and the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre, amongst many, many others. Lucy, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, did I miss anything?
1: No, although I always smile when you when you mention my state Bar of Texas uh, qualification because I am so proud of that. I think almost of of anything I've achieved professionally, it's my it's my Texas bar qualification, which I did late in life um, back in 19, uh, 2016, and um, it was challenging to say the least. So I am very proud to say I'm a Texas attorney.
0: <laughs> a Texas attorney. And, and so, so, well, let me get get the, the that oddity out of the way then first. So how did a British um, uh, lawyer end up in Houston?
1: Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, so I had started off my professional life in London, uh, working for a big ma- magic circle firm. And after about, well, fairly early on, I was, I think just a year qualified, I was asked um, to go to Paris to work in the international arbitration team there. And I said, yes, absolutely. And the partner said, do, do you not want to ask your husband? And I said, like, no, no, he'll be fine. So we went and had three very happy years in Paris, um, came back, spent another four years in London, at which point my husband was asked by his company to uh, go and work in Houston, Texas. And um, I sort of slightly objected to this, and he said, well, I did follow you to Paris. And I (laughs) said, it's not quite the same thing. Not quite the same thing. We had had three children under four at the time, but um, we had really enjoyed living abroad. Um, As I say in Paris, who wouldn't? Uh, We ate a lot of very nice lunches, Um, and I did a lot of very interesting ICC work. But off we went to Houston, Texas, and um, that was back in 2007, as I say, with three very small children in tow. And really the thing that changed least for me was, was my work because I sadly had to leave the magic circle firm that I was with in London, but I was lucky enough to get a position with one of the very big international law firms in Houston. So I carried on relatively seamlessly doing international arbitration work, just everything else in my life changed dramatically Mm -hmm. and um, for many years I was able to practice international arbitration as a foreign legal consultant without having to sit the Texas bar. I was always eligible to sit it, I never wanted to sit it and eventually I gave myself a very good talking to and uh, in 2016 as I say I finally psyched myself up and went through the bar prep and endured three days of exams with 4,000 other students in in an enormous um hangar in in houston and uh, as i say it was incredibly challenging but i i did it
0: yeah (laughs) that
1: that was it and it was 10 years 10 years 10 very happy years um working in houston before returning to london where i am now
0: fantastic um uh, before we get back into your your career uh, my obligatory cv follow-up after i um uh, regaled the audience of, of all these amazing cvs is always what's your favorite ice cream flavor
1: <laughs> i love it um, well there's been a lot of chalk ice eating through lockdown it's kind of been a daily thing um my mom is now saying she has a dedicated freezer just for chalk ices so it has to be salted caramel she's like sugar plus some extra sugar salted <laughs> caramel ice it's the way forward the way to get through lockdown trust me
0: <laughs> yeah well if, yes if you're, yeah i've put on a few kilos uh, down <laughs> it's here good. Uh, COVID lockdown um uh, fantastic all right well back to the the more serious stuff lucy so um this uh, so far, uh, I have interviewed what I would call public international law practitioners. Do, first, do, do you describe yourself a, as an international law practitioner? Yeah, and I've, I was
1: pondering this before before I came to join this podcast today. Because as I know you've you'd mentioned something when you reached out to me about international law, and I was thinking, am I really an international lawyer, or am I? an arbitrator who applies the governing law of the dispute that's before me and, and there is a perhaps a, a di- distinction without a difference there perhaps but uh, just just unwinding for a bit i i studied international law as part of my undergraduate degree although very interestingly back in those days there was no mention of any kind of investment treaty arbitration or anything in the course but i did study both public international and private international law and very much enjoyed that and then obviously in my work as counsel, I acted in a number of investment treaty cases where you were applying international legal principles. But since becoming a full-time arbitrator, I have only sat on commercial arbitrations. And I would say, if you're being a purist about this, no, when I, when I decide the cases before me, I am applying principles of whatever law it might be. And, you know, Frequently, it's Texas law. I have New York law at the moment. I have a couple of cases under English law, which for many years I didn't have, um, but I'm starting to see those now as I get established back here. Um, and that's not international legal mm-hmm. principles at all. You're you're very much looking at the the individual nature of the of the systems that you're dealing with. However. If you take a more bro- broader view from international law, I am dealing with it, lawyers from all over the world. So it is international in that sense.
0: And, and yeah, so, so it's, it's certainly a, a, a version, I would say, maybe it's transnational law rather than international mm-hmm. law. Um, certainly though, I mean, most people when they think of international law, they think of the public international dealing with state sovereign countries and their interactions and you've already alluded that there's also this thing called private international or the um, the rights and obligations of private actors like companies um uh, that that trade and operate transnationally um there is a a growing body though of international or let me use the word jurisprudence around how to resolve those types of disputes as well Uh, And I was curious, so yes, most contracts are still focused on the domestic law and you apply the domestic law as the arbitrator um, that's designated in the contract or that governs the arbitration. But do you feel like there's an internationalization, sort of, a um, well, to use the jargon, a harmonization of of rules that either govern uh, the arbitration process or the substantive contractual disputes that you're involved with?
1: yeah and I, I mean it's it's a great point, Jonathan and i i think I think you're right. there has been a harmon, there's been a harmonization certainly of the way in which international arbitrations are managed and largely pleaded, and um, the cases are generally conducted. I think you have to park the investment treaty stuff separately. It has to be addressed separately. as you say that is probably true public international law so i think rather than an internationalization i think there has been a harmonization of sort of it's generally seen to be a sort of melding between the civil and the common law approaches to the way they argue their domestic disputes and and that works pretty well i don't think there has been a departure as much from the underlying governing law of the contract in dispute that said there's a there's a couple of very interesting articles on on the interpretation of contracts by arbitrators and how we all think that we are very much um, applying the individual's principles of interpretation for, say, an English law governed contract. And if we had a Swiss law governed contract, we would be applying different principles of interpretation, obviously. But there's a very, very interesting body of research which says that the majority of international commercial arbitration tribunals decide according to a very similar set of contractual interpretation principles. So mm. essentially commercial approach, taking into account the sort of back, the factual matrix to use a very much an English law term, um, but but really not necessarily observing the strict canons of interpretation mm. that we perhaps think we are. It's a it's a very there's very interesting I mean I I wrote an I wrote an article on it in Arbitration International Last year, and it was uh, drawing on some research done by Professor Carton in uh, in Canada, and I really it's really interesting.
0: Hmm. Uh, we can add a link to to yep. your article yeah, um, in the description. Um, yeah it, it is um, very int- when I teach international commercial law, I often stress the the, the history of the Lex Mercatoria, and um, I think just by dint of all these international arbitrations that are happening now. Um, You can't help but develop some sort of uh, more harmonization um, just by the nature um, and the number of of these commercial disputes. I mean, we're talking billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, perhaps I I, I haven't seen the last figures, maybe even trillions of dollars that are in dispute every year that are resolved not through the court systems, uh, but through uh, an arbitration. Um, so, whether or not it fits nicely into the bucket of international law or not, I think it's well worth um, having a conversation about. Um, That's right, no, and I, if I could just jump in there, you know, yeah.
1: that, that it's a great point because you know, that was a source of some controversy a few years ago here in England when the then Supre- um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court here said, um, he he expressed some reservations about the fact that uh, commercial arbitrators, English commercial arbitrators, were deciding massive cases under English law and not really contributing to the development of English law through this. But you know, the pushback to that is that we we are not judges; we are arbitrators, mm. and whilst that might be a very fine distinction sometimes, and certainly I. I feel that I am there to determine cases based on the argument and law before me, but I, I am not there necessarily to contribute to the development of, of English law in a, in a wider sense. Right.
0: So, I mean, that's one of the, 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 the criticisms of, of arbitration and of international arbitration as well, that, that you guys are dispute resolvers um, mm-hmm. in a very commercial sense, very pragmatic, Let's resolve the dispute and get on with it, uh, whereas one of the tasks of a court of law is not just to resolve the disputes, but also to also um, develop the law, interpret the law, apply it to new situations and, and, and unroll and evolve the law. Exactly So um, so let me, let me put the, the perhaps the harshest sort of um, veneer on this critique and, and let you respond. Are you not? Uh, with international arbitration privatizing the the process of international dispute resolution to the detriment of, you know, evolving the law, progressing the law, as you put it?
1: Um, I mean, I I think there is an argument to that, but I also would say that arbitration is providing a service that companies are opting for. So why should... Uh, an international energy company what obligation has that company got to to contribute to the development of of a national law they are making a decision to decide their disputes outside the court for valid reasons and we as arbitrators are providing that service i mean you do have to get quite commercial about this and i think occasionally we, we we do lose a bit of sight of this as i say i i I, I, I perform a judicial function in the sense that I am very acutely aware of the parameters under which I operate as an arbitrator, but uh, but I am not a judge, um, and and I, I really keep that distinction very much at the forefront of my mind. So so I, I think you can argue that this is this has been this is taking mm. disputes away from the court, but it is it is doing so because. Those actors in the disputes have Mm. actively chosen a different mechanism to resolve their disputes.
0: Right. Um, And free choice. Um, um, Right, they they freely contract to resolve their dispute um, through arbitration.
1: And, And I mean, the further question then is are we, and again, this is something I feel very strongly about, are we as arbitrators and arbitration practitioners providing the service that they are opting for which is another question right which is presumably
0: sorry presumably they want a more efficient processor maybe a cheaper or a speedier process or all of the above so so when you do ask yourselves that um are are you comfortable that you are providing a better service
1: well it's very it's Better is a difficult word um, because I, uh, we are providing a different service from say the English court because we are providing an award which is enforceable all over the world. We are providing um, flexibility of procedure that they wouldn't get in the English courts. We're providing ability to select a, your own arbitrator or input into the individuals in the tribunal that they're not. So, so there are a lot of very key differences in the two mm. services that we're providing. I am sometimes concerned that clients opt for arbitration thinking they're going to get something that they're not and generally that comes down to thinking it's going to be cheaper and thinking it's going to be quicker and frankly neither of those two are are true um, in the type of major disputes that I I deal with but the question is whether that's an appropriate trade-off for the benefits that I've outlined. But also it does concern me when I, I sometimes think that clients have just opted for arbitration on a flawed assumption.
0: Mm. Um, we've spoken a little bit about, I guess, the merits or, uh, of, of, of international arbitration, but, but what are the practicalities of it? How are you, could you just walk us through how are you engaged as an arbitrator and, and what does an arbitration look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, how are you engaged as an arbitrator? Is a, is a huge headache when you are, like I am, entirely on your on your own as an independent arbitrator, and have been for three years. And and in in the the US, there's quite a lot of people like me, um, as in sole practitioners out there in the marketplace. In the UK, it's much more common to join a set of barristers' chambers and have that kind of support when you're trying to get appointments. Um, but the short answer is how you are engaged as an arbitrator is you are at the mercy of somebody um, you springing into somebody's mind when they think of who who would be good for this case. And that is a very, very difficult uh, nut to crack as it were. you know when when I'm writing my business plans and I'm working on my marketing strategy,, here, Good marketing comes from knowing where your where your work stream comes from, and because you want to obviously market more to that work stream, it is very very difficult to analyse where my appointments come in from.
0: Isn't that? But can I interrupt? Sorry, it, it's yeah, so interesting to hear the words business plan and marketing strategy come out of the mouth of an international lawyer. Oh, like, no, I know um, it's not many law. students of law don't think in those terms, but you're a sole practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um and you need to go and drum up your own business isn't that interesting
1: well that, well, that's right and I, I think I, I would say I'm fairly unusual in that in that for me this is this is not a retirement option this is a career path and it's something that yeah I've, I've really enjoyed the entrepreneurial side of it Um, but I appreciate that I am not the usual demographic mm-hmm. of an international arbitrator because it tends to be people retiring out, either out of judging, or you know, as partners in major law firms, they're stepping down. Uh, that is not my approach at all. I'm, I'm, right. this, is, this is my full-time job, and it's something I work very, very hard at. Mm.
0: And, and, and the process of an arbitration, could you just briefly walk us through the different phases sure. and stages, sure, for, sure. for someone that doesn't know about arbitration?
1: sure so you get that lovely email or phone call saying you know uh, we're interested are you available and um, you run your conflicts checks uh, and make sure that you have no conflict of interest in acting get the appointment and then and it, you may be a sole arbitrator or you may be as a panel of three i i'm quite often selected as chair because i'm dual qualified and i'm not a us national so i tend to often get Perhaps two US arbitrators with me in the middle of the chair. And I quite like being chair because I, I like um, control being being you know more in control of the process. But it but it is very hard work anyway. So once you're all appointed, or if you're appointed, you you then have an initial flurry of work where you are getting up to speed on the papers such as they may be, and you're setting up what's called the preliminary hearing or the case management conference, which is really your first chance to get. The parties in front of you um it used to be on the telephone now it, it's happening much more on zoom um, for, for reasons as we all know we've all shifted uh, seamlessly to online which is great um, and then it's it's really your chance i always think there's your chance to really um impress the parties have you've got control of the process you're setting the uh, procedure obviously with input from the parties and you're setting the timetable for the arbitration and then Really, your work sort of dips down a little bit as they go off and write the pleadings. You may have some flurries um, of disputes regarding document exchange. You may not. Sometimes the parties can resolve themselves. Sometimes you're having to um, issue orders. You may have to deal with a jurisdictional challenge. Um, But really, it, it it goes sort of up and then down, and then you ramp up again before the evidentiary hearing, which is usually in person. Um, but as you and I were discussing before we began the podcast, Jonathan, lots, lots of uh, arbitrations are taking place virtually now. Yeah. Um, and then you'll have a very big piece of work, I, I tend to do it immediately after the um, hearing concludes, which is writing the award.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: really the life cycle of that. Which
0: takes a, how long? How long do you take to write an how award? How long
1: is a piece of string? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I really... I really try to get, crack on with it straight away because I'm a great believer in doing things fresh and not, not putting them off. So, um, but it always takes longer than you think. You know, it is a, it is a very difficult process. We're talking um,
0: weeks and months, not, not yes, hours and yeah, days.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah,
0: mm, exactly. Interesting. Um, Lucy, um, I, I wonder, can I take you back many, many years uh, and, and, and just inquire a little bit about your journey Uh, to where you are. Was there a moment for you that put you on this path uh, to become an international arbitrator that that got you into this profession? A moment?
1: Um, I mean yes i was going to say when when i was asked to go to paris because that's when i trotted down to the library at at the firm and got out some books on arbitration um but but you i need to sort of step back and look at why i was asked to go to paris and where i joined the firm i did my two years training i very early on knew that my skill set was suitable to being a disputes lawyer and by that i mean i i liked right i liked analyzing problems i going back to years and years i used to do logic problems all the time i, I do think if you're that type of person I, you're very much a natural fit for a disputes lawyer so i had i had trained in the disputes department and qualified into the litigation department it was then there was really no arbitration going on um, and then when i qualified i was asked to um, act in relation to a big freezing injunction. And it was in a freezing injunction in the english court but it was in support of an arbitration seated in switzerland hmm. and so that was the first time i'd ever really heard of this notion that you could have a forum outside and the, you know, section 44 of the arbitration acts allows you to to get these freezing orders in support of these, these essentially what, what i thought was a foreign proceeding um and then on the back of that i was asked to go to paris at which point i thought i would better work out what what this really is all about and right. as I say got some books out of the library and went off and then did nothing but arbitration for three years in Paris so yeah. it was it was a bit of sort of happenstance in the sense that I was selected as as the associate to go to Paris with with a partner but uh, also it made a lot of sense it was very much a natural fit for me
0: yeah and if if I could um, be so bold as to take you back further um, what did you want to do when you grew up when you were back in high school I mean I wanted
1: wanted to ride horses (laughs) so Uh I I had a great plan that uh, I was going to go off to a technical college in the north of England and study business studies with an equestrian option this was at age 16 so my parents did not think that this was a good idea at all so somehow I was redirected at that point
0: equestrian well, school to um, law school totally exactly <laughs> well
1: lucy why don't you go to cambridge and study law instead so um you know being relatively well behaved i i i did in fact go to cambridge and study law but i carried on uh horse riding i was in the cambridge team um so i have a blue for horse riding but uh, my um my cambridge career was not great because i um managed to come last, second last and last in my three um, varsity matches against Oxford and in the final one I was actually captain of the Cambridge team which point I managed to come last and fall off. So that was not oh, a great success. Sure so anyway I I decided at that point that um, perhaps riding horses was not going to be a long-term career option so I then then really I was lucky at Cambridge um, there was a good network with uh, the big city law firms and I benefited from it. I was I yeah. was offered a job uh, at, at a major law firm and, and I took it.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Um, are you still riding horses?
1: <laughs> I do occasionally, yes.
0: Oh, beautiful. Still not um, very well. <laughs> Um, uh, Lucy, you have—I um, know you also as a great champion of women in international arbitration. Uh, indeed, I think you were um, involved in a few events also um, for uh, the next generation of female lawyers in, in at Viz Hong Kong. When 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 I met you, um, traditionally I think arbitration has been seen as a little bit of a boys' club. Um, so, you know, perhaps it's a bleedingly obvious question, but um, what prompted this interest? um in championing uh women in in your profession
1: well it, ca- it came about uh, i wrote a, I wrote a paper back in 2011 or 2012 on um the lack the underrepresentation of women in arbitration and i'm trying to think back to what prompted writing that paper and i, and I don't know i mean it's obviously something i've been very aware of right back to um my days in, the London, in a law firm in London, when I remember talking to somebody in HR and they said to me that, you know, the average uh, time a male associate spent at the firm was half that of a female associate and they were rightly very concerned. And it, I always, I thought then, gosh, that doesn't make sense for economic reasons because I was a very junior associate and I knew that the law firm had spent a lot of money on training me and they funded a little bit of, they funded my one year of law school. Um, so it it was not insignificant amounts of money they'd spent on on training the junior associates, and to have half of the associates leave before they should was it was a more of an economic issue, I think, than a than an mm. equality issue. Um, and so I remember that really stuck with me that I was told the average male associate stayed six years, and the average female stayed three. That's significant. And then, as I got more senior, I and obviously, I after I had children, my contemporaries um, began to leave the profession, which concerns me. And one one advice, one thing I do say to your female associates at that stage of their life, if they are having children, is just to hang in there. Just, just don't. just hang on. Even if you have to step down, step down, you can step back up. Just don't step off. Mm. Because it's very, very hard when you've stepped off for all sorts of reasons—confidence, you know, not you know, being an insignificant one of them—to step back on. And so I'd seen lots of my contemporaries leave. I had struggled managing children and work at a full-time job, um, mm. uh, and 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 also I, so, But but then when I started to look at sit down and look at this, I realised that there had been no real analysis in terms of the data. Of representation of women in our field so that's where I really dug in and my papers on this have really focused on capturing the data because in our field we're very good at talking about things we're not very good at um, identifying uh, defensible data and we're not very good at taking action so so I think people knew there was an issue but then nobody had really dug into you know, what this issue really looked like and then what we could do about
0: it. Fantastic. I mean, diversity and inclusion is something mm-hmm. we should be able to all get behind in, in yeah. any profession. Of course. Um, and and was there, has there been, if I may ask, a, a particularly depressing sort of moment for you um, as a, a, a female trailblazer in this, in this field of international arbitration? And equally, if I can balance it, any particularly inspiring. Mm-hmm. Sort of moments that you could share.
1: In what sense? I'm struggling a bit with that. I mean, there have been there have been challenges. There have been, you know, I know that I have an extra there is an extra barrier to appointing me because I mm-hmm. don't look like um, what people picture when they picture an international arbitrator and when when i picture an international arbitrator i don't think of somebody who looks like me
0: we think neil kaplan don't we doesn't everybody think neil kaplan
1: well that's right and that and and you know that's part of our the social conditioning that we're all subject to and i i very much uh, emphasize i I, when i speak on this i often ask people to pick yeah picture you put picture a construction worker picture a ballet dancer picture you know and they are all gender stereotyped examples of of those those type of people um so i, I there's barriers that, that i i i now probably acknowledge that i faced perhaps at the time i didn't really know i was facing them because you're just mm. plugging on and doing the best you can but in terms of depressing moments now i mean i think you you just focus on doing what you do and and i feel i feel very very privileged to be an arbitrator i also feel that i'm Finally, doing the job that I'm really, uh, really good at. For, want of a better word. You know, my yeah, my skill set for being an arbitrator is so perfect. Rather than, I liked being counsel. I liked arguing cases, but I, I, I don't miss it, and I'm very, very glad to be doing what I'm doing now. So.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful, brilliant realization too. Um, one big sort of social issue that uh, was was not enough for you though, Lucy, you're, you've also, I think last year, launched the campaign for greener arbitration. Um, seems to me it's a little bit self-serving given the surname, um, <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm sure it's not part of your marketing plan, <laughs> or maybe it is, you never know. Um, but um, this is a, a, a campaign, a global campaign, to make international arbitrations more sustainable, more more, more climate friendly, environmentally friendly. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. And uh, it really came about because I, I was asked very kindly to speak at London International Disputes Week, gosh, I think it's about a year ago now. And I was asked to speak on a technology panel and as I was preparing for the panel, looking into all the technologies, I just thought, oh my God, it's, and I knew this, but this really reinforced it for me, is that we have all the technologies available to us. Yeah. We should be using them better. Okay. Um, we should be using them full stop. You know, why are we having hundreds of volumes of hard copy documents sitting behind me when I decide cases uh, and nobody ever opens them? Why, why is that even happening in 2019? And um, I'd done the previous, about six months previously, I'd done a big case in Houston and I was a little bit nervous about the technology. So I said, well, we'll have one hard copy set and um, the rest will be electronic. And we, we never needed it. The technology was fine. So. I came away from my panel thinking, this is, this is no good. And I wrote this little pledge on my website, which says, that, you know as an arbitrator, I will pledge that I will run my cases in a more environmentally friendly manner. I will encourage my parties to provide um, bundles electronically. Um, and I will also encourage them to consider taking minor witnesses uh, through video link, not flying witnesses halfway across the world to give 10 minutes of testimony, which frankly, we've all had um and you know sometimes you give them 20 minutes because you feel bad but you know really they could have stayed at home <laughs> and and then from that i i started to get a lot more interest and i started to realize that you know i'm just as an arbitrator i'm just one part in this um what about the conference organizers what about the hearing venues what about the law firms what about the parties and i was lucky enough to speak on this at a conference at an ICC conference in October and um, got together with some people from Dechert, um, Michelle Bradfield, who's now my co-chair on, on the committee. And they did a fantastic job in doing an environmental impact analysis of a case study of an international arbitration. So again, we wanted to get the data because talking about all this in a vacuum yeah. is pointless. And that, so that, we spent time. Yeah, go on.
0: Sorry, no. That, that that I was just going to say that impact assessment I believe is is on the the campaign's website or at it least is, a, a it portion is. of it. Yeah,
1: that's right. The headline figures are on the website, and what we did was we took a case study from one of Deckert's, um old cases, and we looked at how many flights they took, how many. Um, a piece of paper they printed, how many couriers they sent, uh, took everything into account. Would, we even put in a number of how many disposable coffee cups they used you know, in those late night meetings. Uh, uh, uh. Um, and we attributed a value to all of them. And, and Deckard worked very closely with an NGO to make sure this was spot on. Um, and. We produced the uh, environmental analysis, and and you know, it, this was a big arbitration. It was like thirty to fifty million in dispute. But even so, it, it's the sort of cases that are around. There's a lot of those type of cases around, and it came out that the carbon footprint was such that you would require planting twenty thousand trees to offset it, mm. and that's the size of Central Park. Wow! And anyway, we ran the we ran the numbers again with. Um, Changing the assumptions, so we said no printed bundles at all, um, only electronic. And obviously what you take out there is not just the printing, but you take out the transport cost of the bundles, you take out the the associates' times checking the bundles, all that. Uh-huh. And we took one fewer flight at every stage. And then we worked out how many trees you could, you know, what you can yeah. save if you run a green arbitration. But also, we run, ran the numbers as to how much m- you could save on disbursements or costs you could save. And the green arbitration was not only significantly better, obviously, environmentally, um, but it was 40% cheaper. 40 mm, so,
0: percent four yeah, 4-0? 40% of
1: disbursements, yeah. So, yeah. And we really haven't... Um, done enough in terms of publicising the financial side of it, we're Mm. we're working on that and we're working on doing more case studies for different tranches of arbitration, so a smaller arbitration uh, because I think they will still have a significant environmental footprint even if it's a million dollar arbitration, then we're going to look at a 10 million dollar one and and so on. And
0: and perhaps one good thing that might come out of the COVID era is uh, an increased interest in virtual arbitrations.
1: Absolutely and also a willingness to um, view documents on screen.
0: Right, right, It's right. so
1: simple but you know I used to get a lot of pushback from my co-op when I would say well my PO1 says the default is, in, is electronic. If you mm-hmm. want to you can ask for an individual document to be printed out but we are not going the route where you print out thousands and thousands of pages and I would get pushback on that and now I'm seeing people much more willing to mark documents up on their laptops you know all these things that we've been able to do we just haven't done Mm. so it's really exciting it's really and i have to say we won we won the um, global arbitration review award for best development
0: of last year so that's given us a
1: really big big push and and we having people sign up to show their support so please go to (laughs) greenerarbitrations.com and sign up to support hey. the initiative because
0: it, it all helps. Are we, get, are we getting commercial plugs now, are we? Um, Absolutely. I will, I will sure. add the link in the, uh, in the description. Um, I've got a series. I'm noting the time, uh, Lucy. I know. I've got a series of quickfire questions, mm-hmm. if I may, to, to wrap things up. How about that, Lucy? Great. Right. Um, all right. Um, so what will you be working on today, Lucy, or this week? What, what's on your agenda?
1: Okay, I have a um, an order for summary dismissal that I'm wrestling with to knock out a number of um, non-contractual claims from an arbitration that I'm doing as a sole arbitrator, um, which is a relatively large arbitration under Texas law. So a happy afternoon, um, spent wrestling with some fairly uh, significant issues on summary dismissal.
0: And um, you, you've got a really interesting perspective, I think, on international law. I mean, especially given the, the conversation we had Twenty minutes ago, whether or not we describe it even as international law, what what um, what do you think is the future of of international dispute resolution? Let's use a different term. Do you think arbitration is the future?
1: I think it can be. I think we've slightly lost our way in recent years, and I think we need to. We need to. There needs to be a certain amount of reinventing ourselves and marketing ourselves as more. Um, Technologically aware, more pragmatic. Um, people have been again been saying this for years, but I, I think we can be more efficient in the way we mm. behave, and that's I think that links in very much with the with the um, being more aware of environmental factors. You're seeing clients wanting more awareness of environmental, social, and governance issues. Um, I think we have been amazing as a community the way we have uh, pivoted through the pandemic to virtual arbitrations. And I think we've, we've surprised ourselves. Mm. Oh, we are seen very much as this you know, certain demographic who don't do modern things. Right. And actually, that's not been true. So I think we should give ourselves some credit for that. Um, but we have to keep keep yeah. manifesting that.
0: Ne- Very much. necessity is the mother of all invention yeah. so so um you, you never rest on your laurels um lucy so what what drives you what what keeps you going
1: well i think as i said i absolutely love what i do and mm. um i that's what keeps me going because it you know it is it, it's, it's tough as i started as i said you don't know where your work's coming from you have to keep uh, there's a lot of self-promotion involved, which doesn't mm. come naturally to anybody. I don't think it's hard to go up to people and well, I don't go up to them anymore, but you know, I used to go up at conferences, here's my card, if you're thinking of an energy arbitrator, please do think of me, or if you've got a US element, I can, you know, that, that doesn't, that's hard to do, but the, go- the end goal is, is very much worthwhile, mm. really worthwhile. So that's what, that's what keeps me going. I absolutely love what I do.
0: Heroes. I'm I'm curious. Uh, those that have come before you, where, who do you who do you draw sort of inspiration and energy from?
1: Yeah, and I, I I wrote a blog post about standing on the shoulders of giants, which is that wonderful saying about you know how I I just really really took to it. I mean, there are huge there are amazing giants in the arbitration community that I have benefited from, um, but but in particular I would say those women largely who who really go out their way to help other women and and that's something i'm i'm working hard on myself and i when i see senior women in the fields uh doing that it, it's so inspiring so in in with that i'm thinking of people like juliette blanche who's uh, a wonderful um the successful arbitrator but really makes a difference when when she's when she talks she she you know that she's going to go and deliver on what she's saying excuse me and you know there's there's other really impressive uh women who i've just admired throughout the years people like edna sussman in new york jean kaliski in new york who are you know have been plugging away perhaps with not the um, recognition they they should have had, but have established themselves as as you know, world beating arbitrators through simple you know, um, tenacity. I think. Mm.
0: Uh, and we should be celebrating those those people, those heroes. Um, fantastic. Um, my final question, Lucy. Uh, you're a, a mentor of young um, um, young law students now with the University of Houston. Uh, commercial arbitration team, but also all the other work you do as well so but in retrospect what do you wish what was what, what's one piece of advice that you would have liked to have received when you were a uni student uh,
1: you know it's that old i don't i don't want to be cliched but the, i was going to sort of say it's a marathon not a sprint and all that but i was very much conditioned to 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 be it was up or out and if you hadn't achieved certain things by certain stages in your career then then forget it and i suspect a lot of that was the time um you know late 90s early t- early 2000s and and also my sex as well and having children so um i i wish i had been told that you know it, you don't have to achieve certain things at certain times because everyone is different Mm-hmm. And you will get where you need to be and where you where you need to be or where you end up may well not be where you think you want to be right now. So it's keeping an open mind. I, I remember writing a, a jokey email to my boss um, back in 1999 uh, saying, when I grow up, I want to be an arbitrator. And it was an absolute joke. And we had this running joke between us of what nice life arbitrators had. And, and you know, the idea that I have actually managed it is, is extraordinary to me um and it's not been through any kind of grand plan it's been through having great experience in a law firm um, not saying no to things i was very much somebody take on more work take on more work and yes you have to moderate that i'm not saying anyone to kill themselves but you know in your early years of your career you you do have to say yes to everything and work hard because you will get this um great range of experience and and that's what you build on it's being in the cases seeing the arbitrators um, making those connections um, that's that's your foundation for future career development
0: Mm. Uh, and on that note Lucy Greenwood a star international arbitrator a champion and advocate for a more diverse greener more sustainable vision of international arbitration thank you for this conversation and thank you for making the world a better place Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Coley. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present, and future.